So hopefully you have your Bibles with you and you're able to open them now to Matthew chapter 5. As you know by now, we're, uh, we're taking a long, slow walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Mind you, we're going to pause that starting next week, spend some time uh, leading up to Christmas in and in a bit of an Advent reflection. But, uh, but we have been making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and this morning we are zooming in on this eighth and final beatitude. Let me read that to you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A little harder maybe to thank God for that one than some that we've read in the past. Of course, as you read this eighth and final beatitude, you, you notice some interesting points of comparison with those that have come before, don't you? First thing you see is that this one is significantly longer. Uh, here we have a disposition and an application. Jesus expands upon this beatitude, and he switches from third-person speech to second-person speech. You probably noticed that. He says in verse 10, blessed are those, so he's speaking kind of a general sense, blessed are those were persecuted. But then in verse 11, he kind of drills down. He says, blessed are you. Blessed are you. And you are reviled. When people say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. So he begins to apply this beatitude specifically to the disciples. And he hasn't done that with the previous seven. We notice also that this beatitude has the same promise associated with it that we saw for the first beatitude. Did you notice that? Look at, look at verse 3. If this, this is one of those sermons that works better with your Bible open. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So that was our opening beatitude. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now drop down to the eighth beatitude, the last one, verse 10. Same thing. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this is uh, what scholars call an inclusio. That means exactly what you think it means. It means an inclusion. Uh, it, it's it's a, a way in discourse. Remember, Jesus didn't write the Sermon on the Mount. He preached the Sermon on the Mount. And so you do things when you are speaking to mark off sections in your text that you wouldn't have to do when you're writing. If you were writing this in, in an English tradition, you would do a paragraph break and an indent to indicate we're moving from one thing to another. Can't do that, obviously, when you're speaking. So an inclusion was one of the ways that the common rhetorical device in those days for bracketing off a specific body of content. This, this is Jesus putting a circle around the Beatitudes so that it can stand and be understood as a distinct entity. He's saying, this is what it looks like to be a follower of me. This is what my disciples are supposed to look like, and this is what they should expect to receive. Persecution in this world and glory and honor in the next. This is about Jesus establishing some norms and expectations. Norms and expectations. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It'd be helpful for you to understand that. 
that, that the Sermon on the Mount, the subtitle on the series, I don't think that slide's still up there. I don't know whether we can pull it back. What happens back there is a complete mystery to me. But uh, this, there's a, there it is. Uh, oh, no, there was a subtitle on one of the uh, visuals. It doesn't matter. But the beautiful tune we, we love so much and play so poorly. The, uh, that's my very awkward uh, attempt to get at this idea that, that the Sermon on the Mount is a norming tune. It's a norming tune. Uh, the other day, my daughter Peyton was uh, on the worship team for the Christian school. So Shanalee dropped her off, and she picked up the, the guitar at the Christian school that, uh, that she was to, to lead worship with, but it was out of tune. And uh, Peyton, as a, as a young teenage girl, was obviously horrified. She was sure that she was going to sound terrible and everyone was going to judge her. And so Shanalee, in kind of like an emergency sense, came in, and uh, my wife has a fabulous ear. And so she was able, just with a little bit of help from the piano, uh, you know, you, you've seen people tune a guitar to a piano. You, you, you play the note, and you, you adjust the strings, and you bring the guitar into alignment with the piano. That's exactly how the Sermon on the Mount is supposed to function. You're supposed to hear this stuff and, and measure yourself against it. By the way, that's a reasonably traumatic experience. I, James and I were laughing about that just a little earlier. I was saying, man... I hope everybody understands, when I preach this stuff, it's not because I'm naturally awesome at this. Uh, several of my strings are out of tune with this beautiful song. But that's what we're all supposed to do. We're supposed to hear this and say, okay, so that's the tune. That's Christianity. That's normative Jesus religion, right? This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And we make adjustments. Anybody else making adjustments? Then, then you're listening the right way. So Jesus is, a, is, is establishing norms here. He's, he's at the piano hitting middle C. Ding! And, and we're making, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we're making these adjustments. And then he, here at the end, he's establishing reasonable expectations. So if we live like this, if we get in tune and we start strumming, how will this go? Will everybody start to clap and, and cheer for us? Not likely, Jesus says. No, no, if you live this way, expect them to throw rocks and tomatoes. That's what he's saying. And, and apparently the disciples understood this. They, they got it. It was understood in the early church that if you lived like Jesus, if you played this tune, then you would have these experiences, the very experiences Jesus predicted. The Apostle Paul said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So this was the normal expectation in the early church. But let's state the obvious. This has not been our experience here in North America as Christians. By and large, we have lived inside a protracted historical anomaly for our entire lives. But that anomaly is starting to come to an end. Can you feel that? I read an article this past week. It was very interesting. Uh, the article attempted to identify the year 2015 in America, where it shifted from being advantageous to disadvantageous for people identifying as Christians in the United States of America. The individual making that assessment concedes that the advantages associating 
associated with being a, a Christian in America have been in steady decline for years leading up to that. But, but 2015, he said, was the year in which it shifted from being at least nominally advantageous to disadvantageous in America. Which would mean that from 1776 to 2015, Christians in that country were living inside a 239-year-long historical anomaly. Because the New Testament says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Here's the thing. It's hard to go back to normal after enjoying privilege, peace, and prosperity for such an extended time. Now, our situation up here in Canada is probably a little bit different, you know. We always have to say that, and it is. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I tried to do this in my head. I, I sat down and I tried to think of, could I identify a year? He was working on the basis of, you know, various legal cases and various incidents that took on media prominence and, and uh, percentages of politicians, this and that. And, and, and so I tried to do the same up here, but I couldn't do it. Maybe you can do it, and you can come share the number with me after. But I imagine it was something before 2015. When I, uh, James mentioned that I, I've been here 15 and a half or coming on 16 years. When I first came here in 2006, I remember this. It, I mean, it feels like another lifetime ago. But I remember that for our special services, usually around Christmas time in particular, for our special services, local politicians would uh, notify us that they were going to attend. So we'd get a call in the office saying, and I won't say the names, so-and-so is going to be here. He's going to be sitting on the right side of the auditorium. Uh, during the announcement time, if you would just uh, recognize him, he will stand up. Uh, folks can respond however they like, and he can sit down. That would be great. And I don't even, I mean, it seems weird to me that I thought that was normal. But at least in 2006, local politicians here in Aurelia wanted at least some kind of nominal association with Christianity. But I can't remember the last time that happened. And I don't imagine that it will ever happen again. So I don't, I don't know when it happened, but something has definitely changed. And so we need to make some adjustments. We need to understand again what Jesus is talking about here so that we can prepare ourselves and our children for faithfulness and fruitfulness in the years and decades ahead. So towards that end, we're going to ask, and by God's grace, hopefully answer, four specific questions this morning. First one is this. How does the Bible define persecution? Then we're going to go on and ask, what kind of persecution is Jesus talking about here? Third question, how should we respond when we are persecuted? And then final question, how should we prepare to face persecution in this country? So let's begin at the beginning. How does the Bible define persecution? Not every bad thing that happens to Christians should be labeled as persecution, right? If a meteor were to strike somewhere in, in, you know, in the greater Toronto area, it, it would be a catastrophe for Christians in Ontario. A great many Christians would die. Churches would be demolished. Bibles would be burnt. But I, I think we would all agree it would be unwise for us to refer to that as persecution. Uh, Jesus tended to use the word persecution in a very specific way. 
In Matthew 23, 34 to 35, he said, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now the Greek word that Jesus uses there is dioko. It means to pursue or to harry. So it means to chase down so as to kill or evict. It's, it's a word with some seriously bloody, murderous undertones, as you can tell from the wider context. In fact, Jesus mentions there, we don't uh, pick this up because our Bible is arranged differently. Jesus mentions the first and last murders ever committed in the Old Testament. So uh, we recognize the first murder. He talks about Abel, right? So Cain killed Abel. That's the first murder recorded in the Bible. But the Bible that was in use in Jesus' day was arranged. The Old Testament was arranged differently than ours is. And the Bible that was in use in Jesus' day, the last book of that arrangement was 2 Chronicles. And so in 2 Chronicles 24, it describes the murder of Zechariah. And so Jesus was saying, the, the first and the, he was quoting the first and the last murders referred to in the Old Testament. That's, his, that's, what he's, that's the narrative he's attaching to this definition of persecution. So obviously Jesus is talking about murder, 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 bloodshed, and killing. To persecute means most immediately to hunt down so as to kill and destroy. But then in the expansion paragraph, Jesus brackets the word persecute with some other forms of mistreatment and defamation. So look at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So along with the sort of violent, murderous persecution mentioned above, Jesus says, expect also to experience malicious slander and reviling. And of course, the one often leads to the other, and the two generally go hand in hand. And, and therefore, I think it's fair to speak of a continuum of persecution that extends from mild to more severe forms. So there are different magnitudes of persecution. There are also different kinds of persecution. That leads to our second question. What kind of persecution is Jesus talking about here? Look again at verse 10. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So to be clear, to be clear, and we need to be clear, to be clear, Jesus is not promising to bless people who are being persecuted because they are obnoxious or because they are unkind or because they are being fanatical with respect to debatable things. When Christians act like that, they have every reason to expect that they will be treated harshly by the culture. But that isn't persecution, or at least it's not the kind of persecution Jesus is talking about here. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this seemingly quite prophetically. Listen to what he says. If you and I begin to mix our religion and politics, nobody would do that, but if you and I begin to mix our religion and politics, then we must not be surprised if we receive persecution. But I suggest that it will not of necessity be persecution for righteousness' sake. This is something very distinct in particular. 
And one of the greatest dangers confronting us is that of not discriminating between these two things. You hearing that, brothers and sisters? There is no value, spiritually speaking, and, and no promised reward for those who are persecuted for their politics' sake. The, the reward here is being given to those who are hated and harried because they look and live like Jesus. That's what's being promised in the text. Look at verse 10 again. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then in the expansion paragraph, in a parallel way, he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Or as the NIV has it, because of me. D.A. Carson points out the obvious here. He says, this confirms that the righteousness of life that is in view here is in imitation of Jesus. If you are persecuted for preaching Jesus or for imitating Jesus, then blessed are you, brothers and sisters, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. That leads us to our third question. How should we respond when we are persecuted? As the Apostle Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we need to assume that this is coming. Our unique experiences here in Canada over the last 200 years are coming to an end. We've known that. We've sensed that for the least, at least the last 10 or 15 years, haven't we? There is a change in the air. There's a new spirit in the culture. Can you feel that? And so we need to be reminded how it is that we're supposed to respond when we're treated in this fashion. Where, where would we learn that? Where would we look? Well, obviously, we look to Jesus. The Apostle Peter, who, of course, heard this sermon live and in person, probably multiple occasions, understood that he could do no better for his people than to remind them of the example that Jesus set. He said, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He, talking about Jesus, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So there's our perfect example. Peter says, if you want to know how to do this, look to Jesus. First of all, he committed no sin. So if you are being persecuted because of your sins, then that's on you. There's no reward for that. Peter says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. That doesn't count for anything. If, if you're being persecuted because you're breaking the law or because you are getting involved in things that are above your pay grade, that's on you. Jesus didn't do that. He committed no sin. So let's start there. Let's... Let's really watch our behavior, brothers and sisters. Let's really be careful so that when we are persecuted, we can be absolutely sure that we are being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Martin Luther encouraged his people to go through that process. He said, see to it that you have in the first place a real divine cause. Isn't that step one? If you're going to be persecuted, don't you want to make sure you've got a real divine cause? 
that this isn't just you being all cranky about something that's just you. Newsflash, sometimes folks are just cranky. That's not a real divine cause. All right, so let's start again. See to it that you have in the first place a real divine cause for the sake of which you must suffer persecution and are really sure of it. Are you really sure? It amazes me how really sure Christians have been about things they know absolutely nothing over the last 20 months. So make sure it's a divine cause and then make sure that you're really sure so that your conscience can safely rest upon it even if the whole world were opposed to you. My dear friends, at some point in the near future, you will likely have to choose between your divine cause and your tax status or your reputation or your job or your liberty or your life. And you want to be absolutely sure in that moment that you are suffering for righteousness' sake. It is not cowardice to think that through. It is wisdom. See to it that you have a real divine cause, like Jesus did. And if you do, and you find yourself suffering for it, then do like Jesus did. Absorb it. Suffer it. Receive it. Don't fight back. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus could have fought back, though, couldn't he? When the soldiers came to get him in the garden, you remember Peter Peter pulled out his sword, started to fight back, and Jesus said, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Peter had to learn everything the hard way, didn't he? Bless him. Like a lot of young men, he was filled with zeal. He loved the Lord and he was no coward. And so he wanted to fight in the name of Jesus. He wanted to strike back He wanted to defend, but Jesus would have none of it. Put your sword back, Peter, because all who live by the sword will die by the sword. You will get addicted to fighting, Peter. You will want to use force when love and persuasion are called for. Once you start down this road, Peter, it's hard to come back. So, Put it down and take what's coming. And P.S. Peter, if I wanted to fight, I wouldn't need your help to do it. Brothers and sisters, I suspect that we'll be having some version of that conversation again and again and again and again over the next 10 years. When you haven't faced persecution before, when you first do, your initial reaction will be one of the fight or flight reactions. Some are going to run away. Some are going to run away as fast as they can from everything Christianity teaches that offends the culture. But others are going to draw the sword. 
And so we need to be prepared to remind one another of the example of Jesus. We need to be reminding one another. We need to be dusting off this council so that we can remember what Jesus did and what Jesus said so that we can encourage each other in the Christian way, which is rather to stand and suffer. That's what Jesus did. All the while entrusting his soul to him who judges justly. That's the Jesus way. So when you begin to suffer, when you begin to face slander, malice, and defamation, when people begin to pursue you, harass you, persecute you, because you are a Christian, don't fight back, don't revile, don't draw the sword, and don't run away either. Rather, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. That leads us to our final question. How should we prepare to face persecution in this country? I mentioned that, that some folks out there are identifying 2015 as, as the year when it became broadly disadvantageous to identify publicly as a Christian in the United States of America. But of course, things were already starting to change long before that, both there and here. In 2010, retiring Catholic Cardinal Francis George told a group of pastors, I expect to die in bed. My successor will die in prison. And his successor will die a martyr in the public square. Things are getting slowly but surely worse for Christians all over the Western world. Now, I'm significantly younger than Cardinal Francis George, who, by the way, did die in his bed. I don't know if I'm even as old as his successor. So I wonder, looking at that, will I die in bed? Will I die in prison? I don't suspect I'll die a martyr in the public square. But I'll tell you this, I do expect to be slandered, marginalized, penalized, and possibly imprisoned at some point in my lifetime for preaching and living the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will begin over the issue of sex and gender, but it won't end there. The more they inquire, the more they will discover about us. And the less Canadians object to our mistreatment, the more emboldened they will become in their aggression. So whether 10 years from now or whether in our grandchildren's day, this is coming. It's coming for all of us, and so we need to begin to prepare. So toward that end, let me make three suggestions for us on this matter. First one is this, don't overreact. As I mentioned a moment ago, when we first begin experiencing persecution, after not experiencing it for more than 200 years, of course, of course, of course, we're going to be inclined to overreact. Some are going to run away from what the Bible teaches specifically about sex and gender. Others are going to draw the sword and wage war on whomever they perceive to be oppressing them. I'm just telling you that we need to be careful not to overreact. It is possible to press through mild persecution and to enjoy years and even decades of faithful ministry in a culture and be a shame for us to miss out on that. 
because a few people are overreacting. That, by the way, was the, the advice given by the Apostle Peter to some churches under his influence in A.D. 63. You've heard me speak about this before. In 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17, Peter encouraged these folks to press through what they were experiencing and, and to not, not become agitated brawlers in the public square, to maintain a good testimony and to always be ready to give an answer for the faith and the hope that they had in Christ. Yet do it, he reminded them, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Anybody need to hear that this morning? Remember that? Peter said this to his people when they were just starting to experience the very earliest headwinds of persecution in their culture. Thomas Schreiner says here, the only specific suffering noted is discrimination and mistreatment and verbal abuse from former colleagues and friends. What does that sound like? It sounds kind of like now. Well, that's mild persecution. Peter told them to press through because there was a ton of opportunity still remaining for them in that context. And that turned out to be really good advice because actually no one was arrested, no one was tortured, no one was executed for being a Christian in that region until the year A.D. 112. For those who aren't super awesome at math, that's almost 50 years. Think of all the ministry that would have been forfeited in that context if they had overreacted and gone into full-on fortress mode at the first sign of hostility. Listen, brothers and sisters, it is highly probable, I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet, it is highly probable that we will lose our charitable status at some point in the next 10 years. It is highly probable. It, it, it may have already happened. We could share testimonies after church. It is highly probable that people from this church will begin to lose their jobs for refusing to wear the pink shirts, the rainbow ties, or to join in to what other celebrations are being required in the marketplace. Almost certain that, that folks very shortly will begin to face financial penalties and social stigma for being faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ in this country over the next five to ten years. Now, that will be a big deal. I'm not saying it's not. I'm not diminishing that in any way. We'll need to support those people. I hope you're ready to give generously to the Benevolent Fund when somebody in our church loses their job for taking that stand. So I'm not diminishing that. I'm just saying when that happens, it will not be the time for us to dig into our foxholes and to begin launching grenades into the public square. Jesus told us, this is just a return to normal. Listen to how Jesus characterized the mission. He said, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Sheep in the midst of wolves, I don't, I'm not gonna, I don't know how far we're supposed to go into that metaphor. I think it means expect to get bit. At least. I think it means you're going to get bloody. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Notice he doesn't say I'm sending you out as heavily armed vigilantes, heavily armed, you know, rabble rousers in the midst of sinners. So be 
wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So prepare yourselves, church, to absorb some losses and to respond to those losses with wisdom in the coming years. That's what it's going to take for us to remain faithful and fruitful in this changing context. So don't overreact. And then secondly, don't fall in love with the world. This is a big one. It's a big one. I suspect that in our lifetime, persecution in Canada is most likely to take the form of financial penalty. As I said, I, I think the days of you getting a tax receipt for your investment in the kingdom of Jesus are coming to a close. P.S., that's weird anyway. I love it. I receive it with joy every time it comes in the mail. But isn't it weird that Justin Trudeau pays us money to invest in Jesus? It's a little weird. And I suspect it's coming to an end. So let me ask you a question. When CRA stops sending you a refund for your investment in the kingdom of God, will that affect how you worship and serve the Lord? I think you need to decide that now when you don't have a metaphorical gun pointed at your head. For the majority of the people in this room, right? I mean, you young people should be listening, I'll tell you that. Because I think actually this is far more applicable to you than it is perhaps to some of the older folks sitting in the room. But for the majority of the people in this room, faithfulness to Jesus Christ is not going to come at the cost of your life. It is going to come at the cost of your comfort. Will you pay that price? To pay that price in the future, you will need to adjust your affections in the present. The Apostle Paul said, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Brothers and sisters, if you love the things of the world, it will be hard for you to be faithful to Jesus in the coming decades. Luther said the same to his people. He said, he who will have Christ must forfeit personal ease, life, goods, honor, the favor of the world, and not be frightened at contemptuous treatment, ingratitude, or persecution. Can I tell you something? I think a lot of us would rather be dead than be poor. But I doubt that option will be given to you. So you better decide today if you are willing to let goods and kindred go because that is likely to be the price of following Jesus in this country over the next 20 to 30 years. So don't overreact. Don't fall in love with the world. And then one last word of advice. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Remember when Peter found himself out walking on the water in the middle of a gathering storm? What did he do wrong? He took his eyes off of Jesus. Matthew 14, 29 to 30 tells the story. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. My dear friends, listen to me. If you spend all your time watching cable news 
and doom scrolling on social media, then you are going to sink beneath the wind and the waves. If you spend all your time listening to outrage podcasts and political pundits bemoaning the loss of Christendom in the Western world, you are going to sink beneath the wind and the waves. You're going to become afraid. Or maybe if you're wired differently, you're going to become increasingly angry. But neither of those things will bring about the kingdom of God. What you need to do is keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. If you look to him, then you're going to know what to expect. If you look to him, then you're going to know how to respond. And if you look to him seated at the right hand of the throne of God, then you are going to know where you are going. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we freely admit that this disposition does not arise naturally out of our flesh. Lord, this disposition will have to be a work of the Spirit in us. Lord, we also freely admit that, that we have no life experience with what is being called for here. So we'll be making mistakes, Lord, as we initially respond either from our flight instinct or our fight instinct. Lord, thankful that we've already been reminded about the importance of mercy. Lord, there needs to be mercy in the church in the next couple of years because some people will run away when they shouldn't. Others will fight when they shouldn't. We need to be merciful. We need to acknowledge that for what it is, an initial response, an instinctive response. But Lord, we need to remind each other and we need to hold each other accountable to the way of Jesus. We need to hit that note on the piano again and again until we're all playing the right note. Thank you for this, Lord. Thank you for these Beatitudes. Thank you for this Sermon on the Mount. And give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.